with so much new that has happened, uh, what I wanted to do this morning was just go back to something very, very old and something very, very familiar, I hope, to many of you. And it's the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bibles, if you could open up to the Gospel of Mark. I guess this is a little bit of a strange address <clears throat> in that um, we're not so much given a, a kind of background study to the book. I'm not even going to try and give you an overview of the book. Really, I just want to ground ourselves in one particular spot in Scripture, and I want to talk primarily about the Gospel. And, and the Gospel is that good news story in which Jesus came into this world, who lived that perfect life, and he died that we could be forgiven. And uh, the whole of Scripture uh, hinges on this message, and the whole of Scripture runs to talk about uh, the good news of God's work in this world. And yet there are four books in particular, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that, that concentrate on that in an even more a particular way. And, uh, and, and what I want us to do is just think about what uh, Mark's gospel says about the gospel. And I guess there's uh, maybe three different people or who could respond to this type of message. Maybe there's some of you who are new uh, to the church or maybe have grown up in the church but haven't yet yourself responded to this good news message. And I hope as we kind of do this uh, overview of what the gospel is, maybe it resonates with you in a way that urges you to respond to the wonderful person that is Jesus Christ and that you see something today about his authority, his loveliness, and about the work that he has done that you can be saved. There may be others here, uh, many of us here this morning, who know the gospel been affected by it and changed by it. And what we need this morning is just to be soaked in it one more time and just reminded that what an amazing thing it is that in, in God's design that there was uh, the king of kings who came with all that authority, lived on earth, and yet made a way that people with broken hearts could be forgiven. And the effect I hope this morning has is it leads you into going to the main church service, especially going to communion, uh, the Lord's table, with that hunger to worship King Jesus, the one who saved you. And then maybe there's a third group, or maybe a bit of overlap here. Some of you who just want to be sharing the gospel with others. And sometimes it's hard to know, well, what particular points do we stress? What particular things do I highlight? And I think Mark very much is writing a gospel. He's writing this good news story. And I think by taking the time to think about, well, what does Mark highlight in his gospel presentation? I think that can be helpful to give us some particular things when we share the gospel with others that we want to highlight also. But before we do anything, let me pray and ask for help and hopefully, as we go, you'll tune in to the accent, okay? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful to be together. We're so thankful that uh, later on this morning, we get to sit around your word. We get to sing together. We get to uh, worship you, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And we thank you especially that at the close of that service, that we will, we will eat the bread and we will drink the cup. It speaks of that sacrifice, that all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Lord, so many of us, even in this room, we can say that we love him because he first loved us. And we pray as we come and we think through this uh, message that we find in Mark's gospel, we pray, Lord, that you would, you would protect us from being over-familiar with it in a way that it just washes over our heads. And instead, Lord, you would help us to once again see just the, the wonder that King Jesus is, that you would cause us to, to uh, value once more the work that he has done. And we pray that this time together would really be a preparatory experience for our time around the table. For it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. 
Well, if you have your Bibles open at Mark, you'll see the very, very first verse. It begins by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel just means good news. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And all of us know Christianity very much is a story about him. But this morning, what I want us to do is to first of all identify in Mark's gospel, what is it about him that that Mark works hardest to stress? What is it about Jesus that Mark takes great pains to emphasize? What is the good news about Jesus himself? If someone was to ask you, who is Jesus? What would you say? What would you want to communicate in that answer? Well, I think most of us, we have a number of things that immediately pop into our mind. I want to tell you that Jesus is is loving. I want to tell you that Jesus is gracious. I want to tell you that, that Jesus is just. He always does what is right. I want to tell you that Jesus is kind. And all of those things are true. And you can see examples of all of those things, certainly in Mark's gospel. But there's one particular note about Jesus that Mark time and time and time again stresses. And I want you to see that this morning. And it's this, that Jesus has authority like no one else. Jesus has authority like no one else. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, as we said. And every word that he speaks comes with that keenly, that that commanding weight. His authority isn't something just restricted to one particular area, the area of salvation. Rather, his is an all-encompassing authority. That's what Mark wants us to see. And I want you to see that this morning. So let's look at some of the ways that Mark shows Jesus has authority. The first thing, if you take notes, you can write down, is that Jesus has authority to teach. Look at verse 21 of Mark chapter 1. Verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had, and here's our word, authority. And not as the scribes. Jesus goes to this place, Capernaum. It's the place where Andrew and Simon, uh, his disciples, they they come from. It's where they live. And he goes to the synagogue, the, the church and, and, and he's invited to speak. Now, that wasn't an unusual thing. If there was a, a visiting teacher that came to a village, it would be very common on the worship service that he was invited up to the front uh, to speak. And that's uh, what uh, happens here. Nothing unusual in that sense. But when Jesus opened his mouth, everything changed. Roger? She's up here. No, no, no. It was, I, I just was struggling. You were, you were sifting and searching, you know, for the, the pearl of great price. I'm, I, I, just, I just want to encourage this, you know, marriage and love and everything else. Who says you can't have a pastoral moment in Sundays in July? Okay, back to uh, Mark chapter 1. The scene, they're in Capernaum, they're in the synagogue, and uh, Jesus is invited up to speak, just as would normally take place. Um, And then Jesus opens his mouth, and he begins to teach. And everybody in the room recognizes that what is taking place is profoundly different. In verse 22, Mark compares Jesus to the teachers of the law. Those are the seminary professors, the the men with the PhDs and Bible. Unlike those men who had certainly studied their Bibles, who were respected, who could tell you so much about how other people understood the text in the past, Jesus stands up here and his words are altogether different. Why? Well, because he spoke, the text says, with a noted authority. His words were full of truth, yes, but there was a demand to action in his words. Now, why the difference? 
Well, because he wasn't just another teacher of the law. He was different. In the pulpit in Capernaum that day stood the very author of the law. When Jesus speaks, Mark wants us to see he speaks altogether different. He speaks with that keen-like authority. His words are always a sit up and listen type of message. And yet his authority goes beyond just his words. Immediately afterwards, we see that he also has authority over the evil spirits. Look at verse 23 of chapter 1. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him, and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with, there's our word, authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Again, Jesus' authority, Mark wants us to see, is all-encompassing. It's not just he says authoritative words. Rather, his words do things. You have this adversary appear at the synagogue. And the text isn't so much focused on the man. It's focused on the evil spirit that's controlling this man. That This evil spirit has no right to be in the presence of God's Holy One. And yet verse 24 says he's speaking directly to him. And the question is raised in the text, well, who's going to win? Who's going to come out victorious? Who ultimately has authority in this particular moment? And the tension builds in verse 24 as the demon asks, what have you to do with us? What, in effect, why are you in our world? Mind your own business, Jesus. Get, get, get out of our faces, and you notice as well in verse 24, the demon, is, demon isn't just speaking for himself. Rather, he speaks on behalf of many. In effect, one demon has sent his knees knocking before King Jesus because all evil realizes that they are threatened right now because someone with ultimate authority has come into the room and their destruction is imminent. Well, what terrifies Satan and what terrifies all of Satan's minions uh, it is Jesus Christ because he has an authority even over them. And when he says leave, they have to leave. Look again at verse 26. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. As Jesus spoke, action happened. Standing in front of the carpenter preacher that day was a screaming demon and Jesus spoke just five words silent come out of him and the demon runs away uh, Jesus speaks and even the demons obey because he's one who has a keen like authority authority when he speaks authority over the demons thirdly you could say he's authority to heal authority to heal the authority of Jesus isn't a cruel, heavy-handed regime. Rather, it's an authority that is exercised with compassion. His is an authority that wants to help the needy. It's an authority that is moved with concern for people, that holds the hand of the sick, that stays up late in order to help, an authority that is fueled by prayer, an authority that prioritizes men and women's greatest need as well. Look at verse 29 of chapter 1. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. Peter's mother-in-law is unwell. In fact, she's so sick that the family have been notified. The family have been called to the home. The family are full of real concern. Well, look at how Jesus responds in verse 31. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Jesus doesn't waste any time. There's no hand sanitizer deployed here. He goes in not worried about the germs, 
Instead, he goes in just full of compassion for this sick lady. And he grabs her hand and with authority lifts her up. So much so that the fever leaves her, the text says, immediately. The fever leaves her completely. So much so she gets up and begins to serve and look after all of the guests in the house. Well, when the one with authority acts, the results are immediate and the results are complete. In fact, look, look at verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. Do you see the nature of Jesus? Sunset arrives, the superstitious who maybe didn't want to move around early on the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath is over and the sick all turn up at Jesus' door. But he's an authority that is sufficient to deal with every single one of them. And in every case, he doesn't hand out, you know, pills. He doesn't give them some medicine to swallow. Rather, his healing is one with authority. Mark is making a very simple point. Jesus has authority when he speaks. Jesus has authority over the demons. Jesus has authority to heal. Jesus even has authority over nature. Turn to chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. And you have that very familiar account, verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them on the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. They woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea. Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus has been busy, he's been continuing to heal, he's been continuing to help, he's been working long hours, and he and his disciples, they start to travel this long journey across the lake, five miles, and then Jesus' humanity is on display, he's tired, and he goes into the back of the boat, he finds a pillow, he lies down, and he falls into a deep sleep. This man is 100% God, but he is 100% human at the same time. He knows what it's like to be human. I was talking to a gentleman in the church just a moment ago about uh, this Jesus who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus knows what it feels like to have a long week and to be tired. He knows what it feels like to to need to, to lie down, to need a deep sleep. And you can picture the scene. It's it's make you fall asleep at the beginning on the boat you know the the water lapping against the edge little gentle breeze just blowing across the your your face your cheek and head on the pillow how could you not fall asleep but then things change dramatically A storm envelops the boat and it threatens to kill everyone. It's so dangerous that even the four experienced fishermen who've been on that same lake most days of their life, they are full of fear. They are terrified. In verse 36 states, the waves were breaking into the boat. Uh, Continually, water is pouring into the boat and everybody's panicked. They think this is the end. They think we're we're done for. They think there's going to be no way out. This storm is wreaking havoc. And so they go in verse 38 and they find Jesus asleep on the cushion. And so desperately, the the, the disciples shake him and wake him. And the Lord of all creation stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves with just two words. And suddenly the water becomes still as glass. Not even a breeze is felt anymore. The, The monstrous noise is burst by this deafening silence leaving everybody who was there to conclude 
even the wind and the waves obey him. Even in the area of life that terrifies most of us most, the area of death, Mark takes time to show us that that King Jesus has authority. Mark records, and it's one of my favorite stories in this whole book, records that beautiful story about the little girl whose father loved her dearly. For 12 years, they had such a happy life. They spent time together. They enjoyed each other. This dad, he, he doted. He, he, he was infatuated with his daughter, just cared, thought the world of her. But his happiness is punctured with the most devastating news any parent could receive. His little girl was sick and going to die. Now, Jairus the daddy, he, he was rich, he was respected. He did everything in his power to, to get medicine, investigation, medical support for his daughter, and absolutely nothing worked. And so desperate, this father runs to Jesus and he begs for help. Look at Mark chapter 5, verse 22. Verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name, and seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. The worried father is urged to have faith in Jesus as they begin their journey home. But circumstances change and it it all gets so much darker. When Jairus receives that devastating news that the girl, she's already dead. We didn't get there fast enough. Now you have Jesus. We've already seen the one who can, yes, calm a storm and Yes, he can cast out demons, and, and yes, he can save and make well sick mother-in-laws. But what can he do for a dead girl? Everything. That's what Mark wants us to see, everything. Jesus encourages Jairus' faith. He enters into the house. He removes that noisy morning crowd. He dismisses their laughter and their mockery. And then he, he kindly brings mom and dad right to the bedside. And look at the care that's shown. Look at verse 41. Verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. In effect, he says something like, little lamb, wake up. He talks to this little girl the way a father would talk gently to her as as he wakes her up from a sleep. He talks to death's grip over the girl as if she was just in a daytime nap. And in verse 42, she immediately got up. and, And this is my favorite verse. Jesus is so kind and he knows little girls. And so he makes the story even more special for her by ordering a snack to be brought to the bed. What little girl doesn't want a snack as soon as she wakes up? This is Jesus. Everyone in the room, we're told in verse 42, was amazed because even death's grip releases with just a word from this king. Everything that could strike fear into the human heart is no match for Jesus because, well, he is one with authority in his teaching over the demons. He has authority to heal. He has authority even over death. And Mark makes clear he has authority to forgive sin, to forgive sin. Again, Mark chapter 2, the first 12 verses, you have that familiar story about the four friends. We, we, t- we tell it to children often in the church, the four friends who, who bring the, the paralytic to Jesus. They, they lower him through the roof because the crowd is so dense. And Jesus uh, sees this man and he responds to his need. 
In most Bibles, you know the way you have the little title of the section kind of before it in italics. It's not inspired scripture. Somebody has put it there and they try and title these sections so that it helps us in our Bible study. My Bible, and I imagine yours is similar, has a little title at the beginning. It says, Jesus heals a paralytic. I don't know what yours says, but I imagine it's something similar. And that does happen in the story. This lame man will walk. But that's not the point of the story. That's not the main event in the story. Rather, this is another story about authority. And and the question is raised in the center of the text, verse 7, who can forgive sin but God alone? And the whole story is primarily there to make the point, well, Jesus can. Jesus can. And the first thing he says to this man lower down through the roof is, your sins are forgiven. Because this is one who has authority to forgive sin. He will make him walk, but he begins with that great need. And that makes him altogether different because you you do find in the Old Testament, you do find stories of significant people with authority. Moses. Moses taught with authority. And you, you have great men as well, like Elijah in the Old Testament, who were able to heal the sick. But never, never do you find anyone in Scripture who can forgive sin except God alone. The scribes and the Pharisees are right here. Only God can forgive sin. But do you remember what we read, the very first verse of this book, Mark chapter 1, verse 1? This is the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of... This is audience participation. There we go. You're learning well. That's good. The Son of God. See, he is altogether different. Yes, he, he gets tired and he sleeps at the back of a boat. Yes, he eats. Yes, he, he spends time with people. Yes, he travels in two legs. And yet, this, this Jesus Christ was altogether different. He had a, an authority that extended even to the ability to deal with man's greatest need, to forgive his sin. He is God. And he has supreme authority even to forgive sin. That's what makes Jesus supremely significant for us this morning. Because we need somebody with authority. We need someone who is in control of all. And that is our king. That's why Christians can pray to him. He's not just in control of certain things. He's in control of all of this world. He is, it's when we read his, his word, uh, we know that word is altogether different. It's not a, a good suggestion. It, it's a word that comes with authority. It's whenever we hear stories of evil spirits, we, we read about the, the, the tempting and uh, purposeful work of Satan. We, we are cautious and we're ready to fight the good fight But at the same time, we are aware that that that, that wicked, evil force of Satan and his demons is no match for our King Jesus. That we are on the side with all authority. And we have one who heals with authority. The, The sickness that affects our family and causes us panic and It makes the whole situation seem so much out of our control. The anxiety that sometimes grips the human heart and causes us to panic. We we have King Jesus with authority to heal and we can bring our petitions before his throne knowing that that he cares for us. we, We have one who has authority over nature, there's nothing in this world, no, uh, uh, no, no natural disaster, no, no uh, threat that we see around us that is outside of his control. We have one who has authority over death. How many people are running around our world terrified at the moment because of 
the fact that they may get a, a disease that may kill them. Well, Christians, we, we, we can be careful and uh, vigilant and take precautions where we need to take precautions, but at the same time, we don't need to panic because we recognize ultimately the authority over life and death doesn't sit in a mask. It sits in Jesus Christ. And we can have confidence in that. And even more important, we have confidence that the one who is seen in Scripture, King Jesus, is one who has an ability to forgive sin. He is in every way, Mark wants to make clear, the king, the universal king with all authority. This is Jesus. This is who he is. And that in itself is good news. And when we share the gospel with people, we need to begin with that. They need to recognize that Jesus isn't an endearing option. It's not like Mickey Mouse that some kids like and some kids don't. Jesus is the king. He's not an option. He has authority. And when he calls us, as he called the disciples to follow him, Mark chapter 2, verse 16, he, he, he calls, he, 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 his call is a command. It's an order from, from above. And it demands our attention. But as we think about the good news, we also need to recognize the bad and that's not just what the Bible says about Jesus. It's, it's what the Bible says about us. Well, the Titanic was built in Belfast, near where we are in ministry. We always say the, the Titanic was built by Irishmen, but sunk by an Englishman. Okay? <laughs> that's important for you to take note of. You, you can go and mention that to Paul Twist afterwards. When the Titanic first hit that iceberg, little bits of the berg fell onto the, the deck of the ship. And so confident were people in the Titanic that most of the guests, or a number of the guests, are recorded in the uh, accounts of what took place as going up onto the deck to play in the snow, to, to play with those bits of berg. And meanwhile, underneath, alarm bells were ringing. And the boat was, and the hold was filling up with water. And, and, and already the end was inevitable. Well, in Jesus' day, there were people like the Titanic, just as there are today, who, who, who live ignorantly, playing on the surface, while underneath a, a danger begins to unfold. In the days of Jesus, you have religious people who on the surface, on the outside, look so clean, seem to have it all together, look so pious, so committed. They, they, they were saturated at one level in Scripture and prayer. And yet beneath the surface, the death alarm was ringing. Mark wants us to see that danger, that, that Christ isn't looking at just the moral behavior on the surface. Rather, the gospel is one to do with what's going on on the inside. And Mark takes great pains to explain that the source of sin is the heart. Look at Mark chapter 7 and verse 14. Mark chapter 7 and verse 14. It says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. He's talking about eating unclean foods. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not the heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, 
wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. And they defile a person. Jesus is always in his ministry seemed to be battling this group, the, the Pharisees that are religious, but their religion focuses on the external. They're the people that so often are most like us who go to church. They're concerned with the appearance of religion. They're concerned with the appearance of morality. They, they, they want a life that, that others will commend. But listen to what Jesus says. He, he bursts through that charade by exposing that what God cares about is not so much, you know, how did you dress and how do others see you and, you know, what were you tangibly able to do? Rather, what God cares most about is the motivation and the heart behind every action. In verse 21, it's from within, out of the heart of man that all sin bubbles up. The religion of the Pharisees was broken, in other words, because yes, they prayed, and they read the Bible every day. They never missed a church service. They lived very moral, upright lives. But behind it, there was no love in their heart for God. I wonder if that sounds like some of you this morning. You do so many of the right things on the surface, yet within your heart, there's this absence of a love for God. Rather, you're focused on yourself and, and, and you want to look right. You want to appear right. You want to be commended. But, but, but Mark is, is making clear that, that God sees beneath the surface. He has an ability to look deep in. He goes to the deepest parts of our being. And, and it's that heart that God judges, not the surface. Jesus gathers this externally obsessed crowd in verse 14 to reveal to them that God's true concern is different. Verse 15, it's what comes out. Verse 20, it's what comes out of a person as well that defiles him. Jesus, in other words, has given us a real insight into what sin is. So sin isn't accidents that we do on the outside. Oh, I fell into that sin. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Oh, I did something there I shouldn't have done. Rather, Jesus is saying, you, it's not something out here. It says, it, says, it says, you do wrong things because in here is broken. And like a magnet, you're pulled to those opportunities to act sinfully. In other words, you don't do wrong things be, 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 be because you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. You do wrong things because inside you are broken. You are messed up. In verse 21, God is not concerned simply with what we do. Rather, he's concerned with the heart behind it. He, he, he cares about what we desire most in each of these moments. He, he cares most about your inner character, your greatest longings. It's that that Mark says God places on his skills and, and ways. It's not that he's oblivious to what happens on the surface. God takes note of every aspect of our sin. But, but, but it's, it's that God goes right to the heart behind every single action. And that's the thing that he weighs up. And, and that's the thing that he cares about. And when God goes to your heart this morning, what does he see? Well, again, we just read it, verse 21. Verse 21, when God goes to your heart and examines it, what does he see from within? Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Nothing could be more disturbing to the Pharisees than this particular list of sins. He speaks of evil desires that fuel sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, deceit. There you've got the, the sixth commandment, seventh commandment, eighth commandment, nine, ten, all broken. Then he adds to it also its particular evil feeling, sensuality, envy, pride, foolishness, all wicked actions and thoughts. Everything God says is, is right in there. He can see it in you. The idea would have made 
the best of Pharisees blush and most pick up stones full of anger to throw. But look at who Jesus says this list describes. Verse 21 is out of the heart of, well, it doesn't say wicked humans. It doesn't say out of the heart of some. It doesn't say out of the heart of the worst of society. He simply says out of the heart of man. This is an inclusive statement. This is a universal statement. This is all men and women. It's, it's Romans, isn't it? All have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. All the worst sins in this world were being told lie in the heart in seed form, just waiting to be watered. I wonder what sin disgusts you most. Now, all of us have certain sins that even thinking about the fact that people do that makes our stomach turn into not, not up. Whatever that sin is you have in your mind right now, what we're being told here by uh, Jesus is that all the potential for that sin that disturbs you so much, the king with all authority says, I can see it right there in your heart. It's all there. The potential is all there. You may be able to appear okay and clean and put together on the outside, but inside, Jesus says, you are broken. You are an absolute mess with so much potential for all kinds of destructive behavior. The source of the sin is not out there. The source of the sin is the heart. And that's true of every one of us. The other aspect of this is the consequence, that there is a consequence for sin. Turn over two chapters to Mark chapter 9 and look at verse 43. Mark chapter 9, verse 43 Jesus says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye and then with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Here we're being told that sin has consequences. And Jesus doesn't go into graphic detail about the nature of hell, but he makes very clear here that hell is a a horrible place, a place that, uh, that is disturbing, a place that if only you could un- if only you could perceive what it is like, you would do everything in your power to avoid it. So much so that Jesus expands the illustration. He says, look, if you knew, if you knew what was coming because of sin, if it was your hand that caused you to sin, you would chop it off rather than go there. If you knew how bad the unquenchable fire was, If it was your foot that caused you to sin, you kick, you know, Corey. You you, you would hack off that foot if only you knew what that sin would bring. If you knew the consequence of the sin, if it was your eye's fault, rather than go and face that consequence, you would rip, you would gouge out that eye rather than go there. Do you see what he's saying? If you just knew how serious, how disturbing the consequences of sin are in the end, you would do everything in your power to avoid going. But here's our dilemma. Sin doesn't come from your hand. It doesn't come from your foot. And it doesn't come from your eye. 
It comes from, we've just seen that in Mark chapter 7, from within, out of the heart of man. You can't live without your heart. And so we're left in this dilemma. The, the, the Bible has shown that the problem isn't just a set of behavioral modifications that are required. The, the, the problem is the very center of our being is broken and corrupt and yet uh, must be punished. The, the, the consequence of that sin, sinful inner heart is hell. But thankfully, the good news message doesn't stop there. Turn back to Mark chapter 2. And look at verse 13, because we have a man who, if we're honest, we can all relate to, because he's a broken heart too. We read Mark chapter 2, verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. Remember that king with all commanding power, all authority. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's a story with a man up in sin up to his eyeballs. And yet one word from the king with all authority, and he leaves and he repents, he turns and he follows Christ. People couldn't work out why Jesus cared so much about this, this man who evidently was messed up on the surface. But again, remember, Jesus knows just how messed up Every single one of us are, according to Mark 7. And it declares there, verse 17, that wonderful verse, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He knows our messy hearts. He knows the impossible situation we find ourselves in. And yet this king who commands, this king with authority, says, I'm also a doctor who can heal and I can heal that broken organ within. The broken hearts need a divine physician. Only one person has ever walked in this world with a heart that deserved anything different to hell. Only one person was one who at his baptism, Mark chapter 1, verse 11, could hear the words from heaven's courts, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And that in itself, again, is good news. Jesus did what we could not. At that point in his life, he's around 30 years old. And so at least there for 30 years, he's lived in a way that has fully pleased the father. You have a son who grew up, who obeyed his parents perfectly. Imagine that. And God says, I was well pleased with that. You had a child who actually did help around the home. And God said, I was pleased with that. You had a sibling who stood out from his brothers and sisters and refusing to descend into the, the, the sinful fighting habits that they had. And God said, I was well pleased with that. You had a man here who worked in the same job every single day for 17 years with no recognition from anyone. But he just did it, went to work, did his day, provided for his family. And God says, I was well pleased with that. But those words of the father in verse 11 of chapter one, they're not just words of commendation. Well done. They're words of qualification. This is why he, he is the one that we need. 
his ordinary life of perfect obedience, his obeying God's law, his resisting temptation for those 30 years is part of what qualifies him to be the solution that sinners need it. He he lived the life that none of us could. He pleased the Father perfectly. And the good news is that not only did he live as we could not, but through his life, there was plan and design that he would go to the cross. Sometimes people in our world, they, they know that Jesus dies on the cross at the end of the story, but they think of it as some grotesque accident of history. The good man was caught and, and hurt and attacked by, by wicked people, and it shouldn't have happened. Well, the Bible doesn't allow us to say it shouldn't have happened. In fact, the, the crucifixion takes place in Mark chapter 15, but all the way through Mark, we're, we're told this is something that is going to happen. This would be a terrible movie because it's full of spoilers. You know what's coming. Jesus knew what's coming. Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. There's nothing left to be told there. And then it's repeated. Look at Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Verse 30, this wasn't a one-off event. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And in case they didn't get the point, it's repeated. And they don't get the point, but it's repeated again one chapter later. Go to Mark chapter 10. Look at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was talking, walking ahead of them. And they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them. Saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Do you see even the detail? It's not just he will be killed. There's detail about the whole process that's going to take place. Look at chapter 14 and verse 27. Chapter 14, verse 27. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. You you, you see the point? There is no surprises in the story. Jesus' death on the cross was not a cruel accident of history. Rather, rather, it was always the purposeful intention of God. Jesus would come. Jesus would live as none of us could. And Jesus would go to the cross. And Jesus would die. And Jesus would rise again because death would be conquered through his work. Look at chapter 16. In verse 6 and 7, chapter 15 is the cross. And then afterwards, Jesus rises from the dead. And the angel at the tomb speaks and sums up so much of the sentiment in verse 6. And he said to him, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, that's a wonderful note, and Peter, that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. And look what it says. Just as he told you. Again, there are no surprises in this story. 
The death of Jesus on the cross is a testimony to just how wicked men and women can be, that they would treat him so cruelly and aggressively and abusively. And that is true. That is a, a, a testimony to the ugliness of our sin, that we could take one who is so perfect, so holy, so good, so compassionate and mystery. And that does say something about the sinful condition of our heart. But, but it was always in the intention and the plan of God. This is not a tragic turn of events. This is a planned rescue that is taking place. God the Father here, he, he punishes sin. He deals with sin by punishing the only one with whom he was well pleased. It's all symbolized by that darkness that descends and envelops the earth. There God uh, focuses the, the, um, and pours upon Christ his wrath for all who would believe past, present, and future. Look at chapter 15 and verse 37. Verse 37. In that last of moments, it says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That, that, that curtain that hung around the Holy of Holies, that separated the people from that place where God was said to dwell in some special sort of way, that curtain that had sewn into it uh, the cherubim that, uh, that, that, that guarded the Garden of Eden to protect people and to keep them away from the tree of life, uh, that, that curtain is torn into, not from bottom to top, not by the work of anybody at the bottom, but from top to bottom. Only heaven could deal and, and tear apart this curtain. And it's a testimony that through the death of Christ that we just read, as he uttered that cry and breathed his last, through that work, access was granted to sinful men and women to the holy, holy, holy God. And we read as well, it wasn't just his death, but it was his resurrection. Jesus, he, he paid the price. Mark speaks of ransom. He paid the ransom for our sins. You remember in um, Genesis chapter 3, um, well, actually Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God speaks and he says to the the man, if you eat the fruit, you will surely die. If you eat the fruit, you will surely die. Well, here we see in the resurrection, if you trust in Christ, you will surely live. That's, that's why there's a resurrection. Death is never the final note. And for us, there is forgiveness so many people respond to this cross story in so many different ways. You have the, the, even around the cross itself, soldiers gambling at the bottom over his clothing, missing everything that's going on. So many, there's so many churches open around our world today and so many people walk right past them, missing completely what's going on. You've got religious leaders as well at that cross scene putting on a pretense and a charade uh, pretending they, uh, they, they know what they're doing, they know the way, and so many do that too. You've got some like uh, Pilate, that Roman governor, who can see the logic of the gospel. Maybe that's some of you this morning. You see how the gospel works. You see how it makes sense. And yet the crowd, the crowd convinces you to hold back. You yield to peer pressure. And a few respond like this Roman centurion, in verse 39, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Truly this man was the son of God. How is it that you can be saved? How is it that, that you can be forgiven? Well, we see a work that is done, but how do we how, how do we participate? How do we uh, enter into this work? How do we uh, gain this eternal life that has been made available? 
And turn back to Mark chapter 10, verse 17, as we come to a close. We see the very question being asked that the gospel hinges on. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. The man comes up and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus and him begin a dialogue and uh, the man catalogs all the things that he does, Jesus says, and reminds him of the commandments, the standards of God, the way God expects his people to live. And this man in foolishness says, well, I've kept them all since I was young. Look at um, verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. There's something he's holding on to. And Jesus is making the point through this man that no works, no charitable giving, no uh, level of morality, no uh, religious act is going to save the individual. In fact, the disciples are so perplexed by the whole thing that they come back and they, they, they ask, what are we meant to make of this? It says, verse 26, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. He's made the point, it's impossible for a man, a woman, a boy, a girl to save themselves. There's nothing that we can do. They're, 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 with man it is impossible. And yet, he says, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And, and in this sermon that Jesus gives, he, he, he encourages them, the men to think of a, a, a message that had just been revealed. Look at verse 24. He says, he calls them children. Now, they weren't children, they were grown men, but he calls them children. And he speaks to them of the kingdom of God because he's reminding them that just before this episode, verses 13 to, 15, to 16, he had spoken to children, and he had used the children as an illustration of those who get to come into the children of God or the kingdom of God. Look at verse fifteen. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Children had absolutely no value in the ancient Near East. We, we have a, a world that obsesses with children. You know, we, we surround them in you know, music and sport and you know, we cuddle them. We, 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 we do anything for them. We, we spoil them. Well, in the ancient world, it wasn't like that. Children were dependent on you and they knew it. They, they, they didn't contribute to the, they still don't contribute to the household. They can barely do chores. They, they, don't, they don't financially, you know, chip in. They, they're hard work. They suck energy. You know, you have to wipe their face. You, you do everything for them. They don't do anything for you. But we love them. And we give everything to them. And that's what we're being told about the gospel here. The kingdom of God is for those who come like a child. They know they don't have anything to bring, anything to contribute, anything to do. But they come knowing that the Father loves. And that's why they're dependent. I was speaking to the high schoolers a week and a half ago, and I was sharing with them the story of Christmas. If you imagine at Christmas when you were younger and you came running into the, the room where all the presents were and you saw, you know, the wrapped bike and you rip off all the wrapping paper and there sits the, the bike that you have been longing for and talking about for months. What do you do in that moment? 
You turn around to mum and dad and you say, well, how much do I owe you for the bike? <laughs> no. What does a child do? They, 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 they smile broadly. They take and they enjoy knowing the love and the kindness of the parents that gave the bike to them. Well, that's what we're being told in a sense about the gospel. The gospel is for those who accept that this has been all provided by God. With man, it is impossible. I can't contribute. But all things are possible with God. And that's why we love him. And that's why we want to worship him. And that's why it's exciting that in a moment we'll go to the main service and we'll participate in the Lord's table and we'll sing praise to him. Let me close with the commission verse of Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. There's our message. And saying, what is that good news? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The king with all authority. He's here and he's calling his people to follow him. How do you respond to that king with all authority? Have you repented? Turn from your sin. Turn to, to him. No longer living for self, but now living for the king with all authority. And have you believed this good news? Believed the gospel? Have you trusted that not by my works, but as a child, by what he has done, I am forgiven I am secure. I am, I am saved. This is the good news, and I hope it's the good news you've responded to as well this morning. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we have a message that saves, and it saves because it is not rooted in us. All that is revealed about us is that which is wrong and broken and bad. But we thank you that he was one with whom you were well pleased. We thank you that in your plans and purposes, he went to the cross. We thank you that he bore wrath. We thank you that by his wounds, we can be healed. And this morning, Lord, we thank you that now we can go into the main service and we can worship you and we can eat the bread that reminds us that, that our sins uh, are forgiven because his body was broken. We thank you that we can drink the cup that reminds us that his blood was shed for our salvation. And we pray, Lord, that even this time we've spent thinking once more about the good news will fill us with the anticipation to worship you in this next service for you are worthy. We love Jesus because, Lord, you first loved us. And we thank you for him and for this good news. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen.